This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 23. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, The Fungus That Threatens the World. It sounds like the title of a bad horror movie, but this is all too real. It's about a crop killer with the innocent name Stem Rust, and it's no exaggeration to say it could do catastrophic damage to a food source on which literally billions of people depend. Joining us to talk about this menace are two reporters who produced a six-part video for Undark about the dangers of stem rust and the race to find a defense against it. Kirsten Hoppenhaus and Sibylla Grunza, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thank you for having us. Yeah, hi. So, first of all, I have to say I was struck by the sheer beauty of the landscapes in your video. Can you describe where you shot the film and why you went there? Um, sure, David. Um, we went to Njuro, Kenya, which is northwest of Nairobi, the main city or the capital. And um, then we also went to Ethiopia and visited um, very different regions. Um, it was the Arsi region, the Tigray region. We were in Addis for a while, um, which is the capital of Ethiopia. And then also um, in the center of Ethiopia in the highlands. Yeah, and the the landscape is absolutely breathtaking, which we were really um, very taken by and, and very happy about as visual people, of course. But um, that wasn't the main reason we chose these places, of course. The reason um, we went to these places is actually because they're located in the tropical highlands, which means that they have fantastic climate conditions for agriculture. But not only agriculture, of course, but also for stem rust. Um, it's really a hot spot for the stem rust and therefore for the stem rust research. And so um, all the scientists go there that work around stem rust and the farmers are there. So that was the place to go, basically. Stem rust. Uh, I confess I had never heard of it until I saw your videos. Uh, just what is it? Well, stem rust is a, it's actually, well, we, to be honest, hadn't heard much about it before we started this project. And that's part of the problem. I'll get back to that. But stem rust really is a very old disease. It's, it's a fungus that goes um, onto the crops and can, is able to destroy entire harvests. And uh, there's archaeological evidence. So our, our early ancestors already struggled with this kind of rust diseases. And in ancient Rome, the Romans, they actually, they sacrificed like red cattle and, and foxes and dogs to the god Robigus or Robigus to prevent epidemics of cereal rusts that didn't work all that well though and and people had rust epidemics all over the world in India and in Russia and also in the United States as late as in the 1950s there was a strain called 15b that devastated huge areas of the United States wheat fields we're talking primarily about wheat, right? The rust uh, infects different kinds of crops, but the wheat is the staple on which so many people depend. 
Yes, <laughs> that's wheat stem rust that affects wheat. And there are other stem rust like rye stem rust or barley stem rust. So it can affect different subspecies of the rust affect different um, grains. But um, when wheat stem rust, the one we're talking about here, affects wheat. And wheat is one of the biggest, most important staple foods in the world. Like 20% of the calories consumed in the world are covered by wheat. So um, if wheat is threatened, that's actually a problem for all of us. So the form of this fungus that we're most concerned about now is a relatively new strain, I take it, called UG99. UG stands for Uganda, and 99 is the year it was discovered. Uh, how does it spread, and why is this strain so threatening? Well, we have to go back a little bit in history to understand that. So after the big epidemics in the 50s, there came the 1960s, when people finally came up with, well, not a cure, but with a very powerful defense at some genes they were able to, to breed into the crops. And from that time on, from the 1960s, um, wheat was essentially immune against the fungus. So that was, that was a huge success. Uh, and it lasted, and that's a bit unusual, it lasted for a very long time, for almost three decades until 1999, when they discovered UG9, uh, what later was called UG99. And over this long time, when there was no stem rust around, people actually almost forgot about stem rust and they thought it's under control, we don't have to worry about it and we can move on to more pressing problems. Some say people and especially scientists became complacent about uh, stem rust. They didn't inform the farmers anymore and things like that. And then in 1998 actually and seemingly out, out of nowhere comes this new strain in Uganda and nobody expected this and it's part of why this is such a problem, because this new strain is more aggressive than everything people have known before, and it can defeat some of this, these very important resistance genes. And there was a scientist in Uganda, William Wagwari, um, who's actually well-trained in rusts, one of the few, and he discovered this new strain. He was monitoring the fields for another type of rust, for yellow rust, just routine monitoring. And he had never seen anything like this. He had never seen stem rust before. But at that point, very few people had, because it was considered a conquered disease, essentially. So he took a sample and he sent it to a lab in South Africa. And they um, checked it and they thought, well, yeah, this looks problematic. And they sent it to another lab in the US. And finally, it was clear, this is a new stem rust. Stem rust is back. And it is a very aggressive and virulent type that has overcome some of, of our most powerful defenses. And that's where the trouble started. Uh, at this point, I want to play a little clip from uh, your video. It's a scientist, uh, I guess, standing in a wheat field in Kenya uh, and describing what this fungus is and what it looks like. As you could see, most of the stem is infected with these brown-colored pustules, and they can infect the entire stem. And it is also called as black rust because later in the season, all these pustules will turn black. And if you look at the grains, the grains are quite shriveled. And if I have to experience a, a completely infested plant, there is absolutely no grain fill. Or even if there is, all you could see is 
very shriveled grains. And if we have very susceptible varieties, the farmer will not be able to harvest anything. So there could be 100% yield losses. And if it is three weeks prior to harvesting, having susceptible varieties, something might appear healthy and good looking if the farmer is not aware of it, can actually destroy the whole field. And then you could see is broken stems. Just with the slight hint of a wind, the stems would break at the point of infection and lodge back onto the ground. That's how devastating the epidemics could be. So that was um, Srida Bhavani. Um, he's a wheat breeder who works for CIMET, the International Wheat and Maize Improvement Center. And he coordinates the breeding program at the Nujuro Agricultural Research Station in Kenya, which is run by the Kenyan government. And that set, this research station is set right in the heartland of UG99. And breeders from all over the, the world send their samples to the Nojoro station to see if their wheat can actually withstand UG99. Because obviously, you do not want to export the fungus. You want to keep it as local as any way possible. So this is um, the only station in the world where breeders can send their materials and have their new um, varieties tested to see if they, they can actually have, have resistance against UG99. And so in this field, um, you have patches with um, wheat coming from Mexico, from Brazil, India, Pakistan, Egypt, even the U.S., even the U.S. sends their wheat species to Najora, Kenya, to see if it will hold up if this strain comes to the U.S. Yeah, it's it's really like the United Nations of wheat, and and it actually the field looks like a battlefield. It looks pretty awful. <laughs> As you mentioned, the strain originated in Uganda, but you set a lot of your video in a different nation. Ethiopia. Why did you go there and uh, what did you see? The thing about Uganda is that it was first discovered there, but uh, Uganda actually does not have a lot of uh, wheat growing there. So when you go there and you're telling a visual story, there's really not a lot of wheat to see. And the other thing is that the research is not located there. They, and the research that was done there was actually on a different rust. It was just discovered there. But all of the research um, is done in Kenya and Ethiopia and other countries. So that's why we never went to Uganda, actually. So, But the story with Ethiopia is, while we were focusing on the scientists in Kenya, um, in Ethiopia, we were focusing on the farmers and society, basically. And the thing about Ethiopia is it's a very, very special place in many, many ways. Um, we were quite taken by it. It has a very, very long agricultural history. Um, it is incredibly diverse. It has about 80 different ethnic groups. Uh, most of them speak their own language. Um, you have huge varieties of landscapes um, that are very close together sometimes. So you can find a valley with camels and sorghum and tropical fruits and very close by just 
you know, a few kilometers, but at a much higher altitude, you will find goats, wheat, barley, sometimes as high as 3,000 meters. So it's it's really quite amazing. And the what really surprised me, um, if you remember, Casting, is the little patches that were up on these steep, steep slopes of people growing wheat. I mean, it's just amazing. And also a lot of consumers who uh, depend on the flour that comes from the wheat to um, make their bread. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, yes, there are a lot of consumers of wheat, and for them, the, the fungus, of course, it threatens their livelihood. But the other thing that is fascinating about Ethiopia, and that is why um, so many of the scientists are working there, is that everything that's built, um, just described makes Ethiopia just an ex excellent experimental field when you're looking for new sources for resistance for new genes because well, wheat has always played an important role in Ethiopia and because of the geographical and cultural diversity Ethiopia has become over like millennia a global center of diversity for wheat especially for durum wheat and so you have many smallholder farmers you have this hugely diverse landscape you have a long tradition and really not two valleys no two valleys are the same uh, in terms of crops and environmental conditions but the climatic conditions that are good for wheat they are also good for rusts and other pathogens so it's warm and there's always at some uh, one altitude there's some wheat around so for for rust that's actually paradise um so Ethiopia is a center of diversity for wheat, but also a cradle of disease for pathogens. And um, over time, um, in this dance between the two, you could say um, it, evolution essentially has created a huge repository of sources of resistance. So I went there to visit scientists. Um, we visited uh, Dijena Kassan from Mekele University in Ethiopia and his colleague, Carlo Fada, who works with um, Bioversity International. That's an NGO that specializes on agricultural diversity and uh, among other things. Um, and they run a fascinating project to analyze um, the old wheat varieties, like land rises or farmers varieties, um, for their resistance to rusts and other environmental factors, especially drought resistance. And they work in the field and use molecular methods too. So, And they work very closely with the farmers um, because ultimately those are the ones who have to work with the varieties. And they are looking for new genes and in the old varieties and work together with the farmers on this. We should reiterate that um, although you you visited two nations in Africa, this is a fungus that is uh, spreading uh, rapidly, that seems to be changing uh, its uh, genetic makeup and, uh, and, and evolving um, and threatens a much larger uh, swath of the global wheat crop, not just in Africa. Yeah, that's right. And well, what is so concerning about um, UG99 is, well, one part is it's very aggressive, and the other part is it's it's spreading really quickly. It, in a few years since its, since its discovery, it um, spread from the East African highlands, from Uganda and Kenya and Ethiopia, to South Africa, so all along the East Coast, and also to the North, uh, up to Egypt, and it crossed over into the Middle East. It went into Yemen and um, Afghanistan. Uh, so the big concern is that, and it travels with the wind, so it doesn't respect borders and it can't really be 
quarantined or anything. And the big concern is that it blows over into um, India or, or China, where you have huge breadbasket regions. And if that happens, um, there's still not enough resistance in those areas, even after these many years. And if um, UG99 actually lands there, that will cause a lot of trouble, not just for those regions, but for the entire um, for food security uh, in many other regions as well. So uh, let's talk about the race to uh, stop it or at least contain it. When I first heard about you, your series, I figured there'd be a lot of uh, fancy high-tech uh, genetic engineering going on. And I guess there is some of that, uh, but uh, really the approach that you emphasize seems to be a lot more human-centered, a lot more farmer-centered. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, yeah, there is a lot of fancy high tech going on in the background when it comes to analyzing the strains of new rusts and uh, mapping of weak genomes and things like that. But you're right. Um, there's so far there is very little um, genetic engineering going on. Uh, I personally think if they could engineer rust resistance into wheat, they would happily do it because it's such a problem. But uh, wheat, it's a pretty tough case. It has this this really this really maddeningly complex genome and by and large attempts to genetically engineer it haven't been very successful. So this might change with CRISPR or other technologies in the future, but at the moment we are not there yet. But we do have this past with wheat. We have known wheat for thousands of years and, and breeders we've been working with can recite the, the pedigrees of their varieties, I don't know how many generations back. <laughs> they are mapping the genomes of, of both the wheat and the fungus and they have become pretty good at shuffling genes around just by breeding. But it's still an enormous effort. It takes years to breed a new variety of wheat and farmers and us, we are really depending on that. And in the meantime, one important thing to do is monitoring. And this is new. This is something that started with UG99, but now has become, or is in the process of becoming, a global monitoring system. Because the one thing that UG99 has made very clear is that rust really never sleeps. That's what the breeders say, rust never sleeps. Um, so the least you can do is to keep tabs on it, um, where it goes, how it changes, what new capacities it acquires. As Ruth Vanier, one of the scientists, say, says um, in one of the films, it's a living thing. It's, it changes. When you think about this, it's pretty scary. Um, here we got a strain of uh, a disease that uh, changes and mutates rapidly, pesticide resistant, and uh, we're still not quite sure uh, how and whether we'll be able to contain it. I wonder if the takeaway for you two is all that scary or whether there's some, whether you feel some hope that uh, they'll be able to get this under control? Well, um, yes, it's scary, but actually I think there, there are reasons to be hopeful. The UG99 was really a very, very harsh awakening for uh, not only the community of breeders, and um, since then, new strains have been discovered, and they do seem to be just as bad as UG99. But also, um, this brought a community together that was sort of dwindling apart or falling apart. And now you have a community of scientists, of breeders, 
of farmers who have all committed to the challenge of um, finding ways to to live with these new threats. Because what's very apparent is that as the plants change, the pathogens change, and they will always be there. And they will adapt no matter what we do or how much fungicide we spray on them or whatever. So we need to um, really get our agricultural system to reflect that and have a diverse and adaptable um, agricultural system in, in order to feed us. And if we manage that, I think um, we can be hopeful, yeah. I'd like to uh, end this with another clip from your series. Uh, this is a scientist uh, also with SIMIT, uh, uh, the International uh, Weed and Maize Monitoring Agency. His name is uh, Ravi Singh. When you see among uh, dead plants um, uh, nice green plants, it gives you hope. That's what it is, you know, that something better will come out of this. And I think that hope keeps you moving. We've been talking with Kerstin Hoppenhaus and Sibylla Grunze, science documentarians based in Berlin. They reported this project for Undark with help from the Innovative Development Reporting Grant Program of the European Journalism Center. Podcast listeners, you can watch it all at undark.org. Just scroll down to Case Studies. Kerstin Hoppenhaus and Sibylla Grunze, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your project. Well, thank you. It was great. Bye, David. Thank you for having us. Joining us, as always, is Seth Mnookin to talk about science in the media. Hello, Seth. Hello, David. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, so here's something that came out in 2017, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it last year. And it seemed like kind of a perfect way to kick off the new year. It's a Pew Research Center report entitled Science News and Information Today. And they actually surveyed more than 4,000 American adults about how they get their science news and how people feel about it. So I thought, you know, we'd just go over a couple of their findings and uh, see what you think about them. It seems that one out of six Americans in the survey both actively seek out and frequently consume science news. And that most Americans get their science news from general sources, which I think kind of means like mainstream media, like New York Times and CNN and so on, but that fewer people in the survey see them as accurate most of the time. Only 28% think that the general sources of science news are accurate. What do you make of that? Yeah, there were some really interesting findings surrounding where Americans get their science news and what they consider reliable, because there was this really stark dichotomy between general news, which was by a pretty significant portion, the source by which the majority of people got information about science, 54%, compared with the most trustworthy, which was found to be science or tech centers or museums, 54% found those to be most trustworthy, but only about 12% of people actually got their information from those sources. And you actually saw that sort of 
up and down the line. The one source that seemed to be both a commonly used source and one that people found generally trustworthy um, were documentaries and videos, which 52% found to be trustworthy most of the time, and 45% of people got their some of their science information from documentaries and videos. I think that finding also highlights one of the reasons why it's hard to draw really broad conclusions from this, because um, you mentioned before, most people would consider something like CNN a, uh, a general news source, but certainly cable news shows, uh, places like National Geographic Channel um, have documentaries. And so where would that fall? Would that fall under a general news category or a documentary and video category? But it is, it is certainly striking that there does seem to be this this dichotomy between general news, between how many people view it as trustworthy and how many people get their information there. It's uh, instructive, I think, to go back and consider what we mean when we talk about science news. I mean, there's stuff like um, the International Space Station, the findings about new uh, stars or galaxies. Those are kind of uncontroversial. But when we talk about science news today, we're often talking about things like climate change. Uh, and that's uh, that's a whole different kind of news, it seems to me. Yeah. And that could be one of the reasons why we see some of these dichotomies, because when you look at the categories and, and they are science and tech centers or museums, documentaries and videos, science magazines, government agencies, general news sources, podcasts and radio and advocacy groups. If you think about those, the place where people are most likely to get information about these more controversial topics are general news. And so I think that could also be one of the reasons why you see that sort of really pretty stark imbalance between the percentage of people that get their news there and the percentage of people that view them as trustworthy. You know, flip that, if you're already going to a science museum, first of all, you're you're not likely to view what's there as being really controversial. If you're if you're making the decision to go to a science museum, you're less likely to see a, a, an exhibit on evolution and say, well, that's complete nonsense. So, you know, again, it's why I think that there are some broad takeaways that we might be able to take from this. But then when we start to parse it out and look at it in a more nuanced view, it's unclear exactly what type of prescriptions this can give in terms of what we can do to make people trust their their science news sources more. Because, you know, you could say, well, let's find a way to get more people into science museums since they're so trustworthy. But I'm not actually sure that that would really address these hot button issues. And one one side note to that is that uh, a number of uh, of the people surveyed said they got most or a lot of their science news from social media, but only a quarter of social media users, and that's like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and so on, only about a quarter of social media users trust these platforms as a source of science news. And, you know, again, that that also the social media findings also, I think, just highlight why in surveys like this generally, and the same is true for for any 
type of reporting about science or scientific findings, it's really important to be careful in, in the conclusions you draw because I'm someone who consumes a lot of science news. And oftentimes, we would hope so. Yes, exactly. Oftentimes, um, the entry point for that might be Twitter, but it might be the New York Times science section or a tweet from Undark. And then I use social media to go to those primary sources. I don't stop at the tweet itself. So I'm someone who would both be categorized as getting a fair amount of my news from social media, but I don't stop at social media. I guess if uh, one is looking for uh, hopeful signs from this survey, uh, it would be in the finding that a broad majority of the people surveyed think the news media do a good job covering science. Even uh, Republicans uh, agreed with that statement. 50% of Republicans agreed with that statement. 64% of Democrats agreed with it. But then uh, on the other side, news media too quick to report findings that may not hold up. Republicans 53% agreed with that, Democrats 36%. And general news outlets get facts right most of the time, Republicans only 22% and Democrats only 34%. And again, that was one of the findings that I found sort of curious because you have by far the largest percentage of people getting their science news from general news sources, and you have an overwhelming majority saying that they do not get the facts right most of the time. As you said, 78% of Republicans and 66% of Democrats think that they do not get facts right most of the time. But at the same time, a pretty healthy overall majority think that the news media does a good job covering science, which is curious. You would you would think that those two facts might not necessarily correlate like that. It makes one wonder how the public is defining the media. And if they're defining documentaries and videos as the media, then why is that broken out separately and th then other science news segments, et cetera. So it's, you know, I, I think the Pew did a very good job, as they often do, drilling down on a complicated issue. But I also, at the same time, feel like what, what this provides us with is an interesting sort of baseline of facts from which we can then try and make further, do, do further explorations and further studies and, and see what this really means. Yeah, it's pretty confusing um, in a certain way. I, I wonder if a lot of it doesn't have to do with just the way the question is asked. Yeah, and I think a, a, another interesting thing is these questions are asking for the public's overall impressions. And what we see is a real difference between their overall impressions and their consumption habits and what they say about those consumption habits. And I think that also highlights a potential other area that's worthy of further exploration, which is instead of asking about general impressions, drilling down. And so when you have only 28% of respondents saying that they trust general news sources, I think it would be interesting to drill down further on that and ask, well, what is it, what can you give us examples of stories that you have found to be untrustworthy? And sort of try and parse out a little bit if that 
negative impression is related more to general negative impressions about the media, which Pew has also looked into and, and has shown to be very high, or if there are really specific stories and issues that people feel like they've been misled on. Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Seth, as always, thanks. Yes, thank you, David. And now, an unlikely hotbed of dinosaur activity, a fossil park in the wilds of New Jersey. Kate Morgan has the story. In suburban New Jersey, at the bottom of an old quarry behind a Lowe's home improvement store, world-class paleontologists and middle schoolers are knee-deep in the Cretaceous period. I'm in water. I have my hand in water, and I'm looking for more fossils. And it is very, it, it's freezing. You can't see anything through it. I think that was the point. Fossil experts have known about this site for decades. Back when it was a mud mining quarry, paleontologists followed the bulldozers around, scooping up evidence of extinct sea life. Once the mining company moved out, a local university used a grant to turn it into the Gene and Rick Edelman Fossil Park. Today, it's an excavation site that offers definitive proof of the asteroid strike that took out the dinosaurs. More on that later. It's also the location of one of the coolest field trips around, where kids covered in mud up to their elbows and knees take home Ziploc bags full of fossilized clams, sea sponges, and shark's teeth. This is all happening because of paleontologist Dr. Kenneth Lacovara, dean of the School of Earth and Environment at Rowan University and director of the fossil park. In 2005 in southern Patagonia, he unearthed Dreadnoughtus, a vegetarian dino that stood two stories tall at the shoulder and weighed more than a Boeing 737. I am a paleontologist, and I have spent my career traveling the world digging up giant dead things. Last September, Lacovara published a book based on his popular TED Talk called Why Dinosaurs Matter. It's definitely worth a read, but I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. They matter because dinosaurs were just like us. They were, without question, the dominant species of their era, but vulnerable enough to be snuffed out after one really bad day. The dinosaurs were doing just great, and then they got murdered uh, by a space rock. And during that entire reign of the non-avian dinosaurs, our ancestors are little shrews living in the you know, dark and forgotten recesses of the dinosaur world, hoping against hope to never, ever be noticed by a dinosaur. And then the playing field gets cleared by that asteroid. And then we can come out and stand under the blue sky. And then we have all these opportunities. And some of us evolve into whales and some evolve into giant predators and herd animals. And some of us turned into primates. And a few of those primates turned into sentient apes, and they started building sailing ships and rocket ships and cable television and chocolate chip cookies. And you know, But none of that happens if the dinosaurs aren't cleared off the playing field, and that only happens because of a cosmic accident. In his book, Lacovara writes about the fallout of that cosmic accident in excruciating, vivid detail. This is not the story you read in any science textbook. 
it's very easy to talk about the extinction that took out the dinosaurs and 75% of life on Earth. It's easy to talk about that in a very clinical, scientific, sterile way. But, you know, when you really think about it, it, it was Armageddon. Millions and millions of animals died that day and then in the weeks and the years that followed. And it was a horrible, horrible event. It's super interesting, but it's also chilling. We know how many minutes it took for the seismic waves to get there. We know how many minutes it took for the fallout to occur. And then the hurricane force winds and then the tsunamis and the dust clouds. And so we can paint this very vivid picture of a hadrosaur that was living on the coast of New Jersey 66 million years ago, minding its own business, doing hadrosaur things like chomping leaves and farting and stomping around. And then all of a sudden, a space rock unleashes hell on Earth. And there's only moments left in the incomprehensibly long reign of the dinosaurs. And I take the readers through those last few minutes. If it seems like Lacovara has an unusually clear idea of what it would look like for almost all the living things on Earth to die at once, that's because he's seen it. Down near the bottom of the Edelman Fossil Park, we have a layer. It's only about 15 centimeters thick. It's a rich accumulation of fossils. It's what we would call a bone bed because it has a lot of the remains of vertebrate animals in it. And we've been able to establish over the last five years that what we're looking at is a mass death event there. And we can see that it's near the end of the Cretaceous period, but I would have never taken it beyond that, except that in the last two years, we have begun to discover multiple proxies for asteroid impact in that very bone bed. So it looks to us like what we have preserved there is from the day that the asteroid hit and wiped out 75% of species on the planet. This is something that I've looked for all over the world. This is something that a lot of people have looked for all over the world. And in a hole in the ground behind the Lowe's in Mantua Township, New Jersey, I think we have it. Most paleontologists wouldn't let hordes of eighth graders go tromping around the site of a major discovery. But Lacovara, if you couldn't tell, isn't most paleontologists. He wants these students to understand exactly what extinction looks like, because they might be humanity's best hope at avoiding a similar fate. I mean, the dinosaurs were 165 million years into world domination when a giant space rock came hurtling in and reduced them to piles of bones. Humans could be next, and it will almost definitely be all our fault. The dinosaurs didn't see it coming, and they couldn't do anything about it. We can see it coming. They didn't have a choice, and we do. And rain's end. That's the big lesson. Humans were not inevitable, and our future is not inevitable either. What makes us think that that can't happen to us? The final chapter of Lacovara's book details all the ways we're cutting short our own world domination and becoming, metaphorically speaking, our own murderous space rock. We are warming the planet, melting the glaciers, and raising the seas, he writes. We're cutting down rainforests, filling in wetlands, and thawing the tundra. We're despoiling our environment with pesticides, heavy metals, and a witch's brew of flushed pharmaceuticals. We are the asteroid. Barring the colonization of Mars, Lacovara thinks our only real hope is a generation of Earthlings who understand how to protect the atmosphere that keeps us going. Maybe it won't be an asteroid, maybe it will be, but maybe it won't be an asteroid. But, you know, environmental degradation, the climate crises, nuclear war, we have to 
take care of this planet because it's the only place we have. There is no planet B. One of our goals is to help grow better citizens. And part of being a better citizen is to take responsibility for your place in the ecosystem. And I get to help kids see a bigger world than maybe they would see otherwise and maybe discover some things about themselves that they wouldn't otherwise learn. Do you feel like you've learned anything from them? I have, yeah. And what I have learned is that learning doesn't happen in the absence of fun. Kids are looking for some action, right? They want to have fun. And why not? You know, why do we try to beat the fun out of learning? Because, you know, being a scientist is a hell of a lot of fun. You know, we're explorers, we're adventurers, and that's what kids are. I think they're all explorers. And I think we, we do try to learn from the kids in the fossil park. And, and they instruct us every day that you have to keep the fun and the adventure in it uh, for the real learning to occur. Back in the fossil park, there's no question fun is being had. Michael, a student from a nearby middle school, has mud everywhere. My knees, my hands, some on my face. It's fun here. But he's learning, too, and having some interesting thoughts about his place in deep time and how quickly things can change. If the dinosaurs weren't here, we wouldn't really be here. They kind of taught us something in life. Probably should pay more attention to it. I'm sure people aren't worried about it, though. Do you think they should be? Yeah, they, de they definitely should, just in case if it did ever happen. For Undark, I'm Kate Morgan. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Special thanks to Hans-Peter Eckhart. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. Undark.